verses 17 through 38. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I have lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build, build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that, this, that by this kind of hard work, we must keep the weak, remembering the words of Jesus himself. It is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept, and as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. This is God's word. Please remain standing as we pray. Dear God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you loved us enough to give it to us, God. Thank you that it is still alive and well and breathing, God. Thank you for a pastor who studies over it and pours himself into it so that he can bring it before us, God, and share with us what you've taught him. God, speak to us this morning. Open our hearts and our ears. We love you so much. In your name, amen. amen. Well, welcome, everybody. It's so good to see everybody this morning. I hope that the Lord is, is encouraging you this morning and that... Um, you feel um, that the Word of God is already enriching you just by its reading, just by hearing the Word of God read, um, has transformative power in our lives. And we just uh, never should forget that. We should always remember just the power of the Gospel and the Word of God. So God bless you. Thanks for being here. Um, I think many of us this morning are encouraged um, to know that we have a place that we can come in freedom. Um, to worship God and to hear his word proclaimed. Um, and I just want to encourage you all to um, not just hear the word, but share the word. Right? So after, after our service this morning, we're going to be having some food together. Just share the word with each other. Pray with each other. 
spend time with each other. And um, shortly after the food is served, we're going to begin um, our time um, as members. But everyone's um, invited to stay. You don't have to be a member to stay. It's an open meeting. Um, but um, we're going to have a very special time where we're going to actually install, officially install, um, the overseeing pastors um, of Refuge Church. And that's just a really exciting and just kind of a historic event for us. It's the first time we've ever done this. And um, we're just very excited. Providentially, and this is really the God's honest truth, this was the next um, passage um, that I was um, preaching in the book of Acts. And how appropriate is it if you um, heard, heard the message well of the, the reading just a, a moment ago. It's all about the, the shepherd and the elders and what we're supposed to be as elders and how the church is supposed to interact and engage with their elders. So what an appropriate passage of scripture. I think any installation ceremony, it's probably the passage I would have chosen, but it was really, um, by God's good grace, the, the next passage in line. So I hope that you stay for that. Um, we're also going to be hearing uh, the testimony of Carol Martinelli, just how she came to faith in Jesus Christ, and we're going to uh, really enjoy that time, and we're going to um, hopefully see uh, Chris Fortune received it as a new member to our church as well. So just hang around for that. It's going to be a lot of fun. And um, make sure to, like Bill was saying, take a box, take two. I believe, too, if, um, if we run out, um, correct me if I'm wrong, unless Bill disappeared, I think you can actually, you don't need those boxes. I think you can use like, the plast like a plastic one similarly sized, right? And I, I, would, I would assume if you just go to OCC.com, it will show you what, you know, buy, don't buy a big giant one. <laughs> um, but it will show you which one to buy. Heather knows a lot about it, too. I'm sure she, you're willing to, she's willing to talk to you about it as well. So. But, yeah, just praise God that we're together this morning. Excuse me a moment. I think all of us drank out of the same water bottle last week. <laughs> we we got to stop sharing that communion cup. <laughs> we do it the old-fashioned way here. <laughs> um, we're starting to see a finish line in our study of the book of Acts. If you're new here, we're going through the book of Acts. And we're in chapter 20. There's 28 chapters. So we're almost done. Um, it really is about the earliest Christianity. And it's uh, central to understanding what the life and mission of the church really should look like. That's why we're going through it. We're still kind of a new church. We're headed up to our two-year anniversary now, but we're still pretty young. We're still in our kind of, at, not adolescence, our, I guess we're toddlers now. Um, <laughs> so we're learning how to walk and eat and stuff. But, um, but yeah, we're, we, we wanted to go to the book of Acts because Acts is all about what Christianity is, pure Christianity. And when we started, uh, we noted that basically there's a three-fold structure. I want to do a little review because we've been in it for a while. But there's a three-fold structure of the book of Acts. Right at the beginning, we see in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, uh, really what is the outline of the whole book and what is the commission to the church to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? And we see that all, through, all throughout Acts, that structure being followed. The first part of Acts, the gospel goes to Jerusalem. The second, it goes to Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Um, that's the remaining of the book of Acts. And we're, right now, we're in that ends of the earth section, chapter 20, and following some chapters before it as well. But we're in that ends of the earth setting. We observed that the day of Pentecost. You remember this? This was a um, sermons going back now, but going through the book of Acts, we observed the day of Pentecost. We um, we saw the we saw the start of the first church, their early community, how they lived life together, shared their possessions with each other. We saw their persecution. We saw we saw many conversions of the apostle Paul, then Saul of Jews, Gentiles, pagans, all these conversions. Uh, stories all throughout, uh, all throughout Acts. 
And we, we saw Paul's missionary journeys more recently begin. As, as the Apostle Paul converted in chapter 9, we remember that he was converted in chapter 9, and then some chapters after, he begins his journeys all throughout Asia Minor. And all the churches that he planted, uh, phenomenal to look at. We've seen him in Athens and Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth. Last week we left Paul in Ephesus after a major riot. Remember that? They wanted to tear his head off. Um, and then a clerk settled the crowd down and gave a speech to the crowd, and they uh, thankfully didn't tear his head off. Um, uh, the only speech in Acts directed distinctly to Christians is the one that we just heard. Every speech in the book of Acts is to non-believers. Um, it's, to, it's to either uh, Jewish leaders or pagan uh, crowds or, or the like. But this morning, we read the only speech in the book of Acts actually delivered to the church itself, a distinctly Christian audience. Now, Paul evangelized the city of Ephesus. That's where he is right now. He's in the city of Ephesus. He's building the Ephesian church for three years. But now he's about to leave, and most likely he even says this, I'll never see any of you again. Imagine if any one of us, myself included, got up and said, I'm leaving and we'll never see each other again. What a hard day that would be. Now, it's more than just a goodbye speech, though. This is so much more than a goodbye speech to a particular group of elders. Recall that he had planted the church um, on, this, this, on these coasts. The Aegean Sea laid between the east and west coast of modern-day Greece and Turkey. And, many, and the many churches that Paul um, planted there, he'd be called away from them. He's going to Jerusalem now. He's called away. He was leaving the church in the hands of the presbyteros, the elders, the bishops, the, the bishops, the pastors that he had trained, that he had taught, that he had discipled to lead the church and to shepherd the flock of God. And what we have in this speech really is, is sort of like an undiluted concentrate. You know, you know when you buy that, that juice that you mix with water, it's like a concentrate or that... or, or um, you know, sometimes cleaners are like that. You don't just use it straight. You mix it with something else. It's almost like that. You get an undiluted concentrate of what we find in the pastoral letters that he writes um, guiding the life of the church in First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. You kind of have that in concentrate or summary form right here in Acts chapter 20. It's a speech um, directly addressed to the Ephesian elders, but it really is addressed to the church itself. Because whenever Paul addressed the elders, the, the intention was to take that message to the, to the church itself, to not just have it fall on the ears of the elders or one person in particular, but to be shared with all the community. See, we have a Bible now that we can read and we share. They didn't. So whenever the apostles would deliver a message to them, it was expected to be read publicly. And that's what was happening here. It's, real, it's not just to elders. It's to the church as well. And what we find in it is what a gospel church really is. And a gospel church is a sheepfold church. And that's, a, that's the title of my sermon this morning. The, the sheepfold church. A gospel church is a sheepfold church. It's a shepherded church. I want to explain to you this morning what that means by kind of looking a little bit more carefully at Paul's speech. A sheepfold church is explained in our text by, in three ways. We're going to look at these. The example the call, and the outcome. The example, the call, and the outcome. So if you're taking notes, you probably like that. I usually 
do points in threes. It's pretty simple. You can, they're not very long points. <laughs> so our note takers are very proud of me. Um, the example of the call and the outcome. Let's look at the example. Paul sets a marvelous example of Christian leadership and pastoral care. We see that. It, it, I read this and I'm like, how can I live up to this standard? But you know what? I can because Paul's not Jesus. <laughs> Paul's flesh and blood. Paul could do this because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Friends, I think that we look at life sometimes and we think, I can never be that spiritual. Yes, you that's a lie. That is a lie. You are deceived, friends. Satan has tricked you. There is no sin that you can't overcome. There's no sin that you can't overcome. With the help, I know it's hard. I know sometimes it takes years, but friends, don't give up. There is no standard that we, can, we see in Scripture that we can't fulfill in Christ. It's just true. Paul's life and mission, mission, ministry, I think it's, it's really like the gold standard of global mission strategy. It's the gold standard of church planting, missionary life, evangelism, discipleship, church life, pastoral care. We want to pay attention to it. And what we see happening, particularly in Ephesus, is a Christian life and ministry like church manual of sorts through Paul's work and example. He sets a marvelous example that is summarized in, in, two very, uh, in a few very simple words that he served the Lord. You saw those words in our text. He served the Lord in verse 19. How did Paul serve the Lord as a Christian leader, as a pastor of sorts to the Ephesian church? How did he serve the Lord? Christian ministry begins and ends with servanthood. But what does that mean? How do we serve each other as Christians? How do pastors faithfully serve the congregation, the, 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 the sheep that they oversee, that they care for and that they're responsible for. The willingness to put the will of God before our own is absolutely essential to any servant life. You can't do it if you don't do that. If TV shows are more important, if rest is more important, it just will always get in the way. So the willingness to put the will of God before your own. We saw Paul last week, remember this, Oh, no, this was the week before. We, we saw Paul bent over, suffering in pain in stocks, singing to Jesus Christ, and then evangelizing his torturer. How do you do that unless you're a servant? Unless you put the will of God before your own. How marvelous this service was. What an example we have set for us. How did he set us an example? What is the example of a good shepherd that we see in Paul's life? The first thing that we see is that he was a servant. The way that he served was through humility and through tears. We see that in verse 19. You're gonna, did you notice, as you read this, a certain kind of desperate demeanor between Paul and the people? This kind of like emotional, almost, I guess for lack of a better word, hysteria. He served the Lord with humility and tears. Later on, I believe it's in verse 30, we read that Paul was with these people day and night, warning them with tears. You know, oftentimes when Christian leaders warn us, it offends us, doesn't it? How dare you say I can't do that thing? That, that, that's how we feel inside. We might not say that. But the, when, any, when, anyone, when, when any Christian leader warns us, we tend to just immediately get offended. You know, oh, they're judgmental, and who do they think they are? And, but here's Paul warning them 
day and night with tears. And that's the key. You see, it's hard to get down someone's throat who you, who you know just desperately loves you, desperately cares for you. And that's what we see in Paul's life. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, we see this again in Paul. I came to you, he says, in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a de- demonstration of the Spirit's power. I read this and I think, what's wrong with this guy? Don't, I don't want to come to people in weakness, in fear and trembling, with non-persuasive words, right? It, we don't, with great fear and trembling, it doesn't really sound like anyone, any of us would want to follow, does it? Isn't it true, though, that for someone to see you both at your best and at your worst, it has to mean that you know them, that you spend lots of time with them. Isn't that true? Day and night, he warned them. It seems to me that this shepherd, this good shepherd, was tireless in his care for his sheep. He was with his people. He knew his people. And to be with people, to be really with people, you expose yourself. You don't see just their strengths. You see their weaknesses. Your life becomes visible to them. Now, most people, how many people can agree with me, control what other people see about them, (laughs) right? Especially leaders. Leaders are very good at this. Oftentimes, we kind of put out a public persona, almost the opposite of what is our true self. We don't want the true self out. We want the false self out. Now, how many people have a Facebook account? Okay, the ones who didn't raise their hands are lying. (laughs) Or maybe you just don't like raising your hands during questions. But anyway, we all have it, and how many people know this is true? We put our best face on Facebook, don't we? We don't put the gross pictures of us, like in the mid-chew, you know, like, who? why did Pat take me a picture of me like that and then put it online? Like, that's ridiculous. Take that down, please. You might have even emailed her a couple times. Can you please take that picture down? It's horrendous. Because we put our best face up, right? And, and many of us, maybe this isn't true for everyone on, on, on you know, public you know, things like this, but many of us even talk a good game. Oh, glory to God. Isn't he always awesome all the time? And we put up C.S. Lewis quotes. And we don't say, oh, man, you know, this guy really ticked me off this morning. But we don't do that. We put our best best face forward. I'm not telling you to be a jerk on Facebook, but your profile is going to be much different tomorrow. Um, But we do this. We put up, you know, that's just kind of one example, but oftentimes we put up who we desire to be or wish to be um, in the presence of the world. But but, but how, how, we know we fall short of it, right? And we know we do, but we tend to hide that. We tend to kind of keep that at home. Our wives or our husbands or children usually only get a window into that particular side of us. But Paul didn't hide himself. He didn't hide his weakness. He was a shepherd who was able to confess his sin. He was a shepherd who was able to admit that he was sad or afraid. He was a leader who could do this. Now, why? Why didn't Paul hide his weakness? When that's what so many people do. Well, that, that's what we're so often told to do as leaders. 
pretty much everyone does this all the time. Why didn't he do it? How is he going to sell the gospel by showing his weakness? Dr. Keller explains that fallen humanity and even forgetful Christians are stuck on a spectrum of either ego explosion or self-loathing. Okay? So we're on the spectrum. Most people, even Christians, fall into this, of ego explosion or self-loathing. You see, what he means by this is that we're all trying to be saved. We're all trying to save ourselves. Irreligious people might not use that word, but that's what they're trying to do. Religious people attempt to save themselves through morals. You know, if I'm good, God will like me and love me and bless me. If I'm bad, I'm done. I'm toast. Irreligious people attempt to prove themselves. That's maybe the word they use instead of save themselves. But irreligious people will tend to prove themselves through accomplishments or affirmations or, or the like. So you end up on a spectrum. That's what Dr. Keller meant. You end up on a spectrum. When you do well, whatever is your law, when you obey that law, you got a big ego. you got a big head. Maybe even kind of silently smug in your heart and think, you know, if, if that person was like me, they'd have a better life. They'd be a better person, better to society. Right? But when you fail it, when you fail your, fail your law, it crushes you, doesn't it? You self-loathe. I'm a bum. Right? So you end up on a spectrum. If you do well, you have a big ego. If you, if you don't do well, you self-loathe. But the doctrine, the gospel, takes you off the spectrum. Because the gospel allows you to do well and not boast in that wellness. Because you know that you're doing well because of the grace of God. That you're doing well because he has rescued you. And also, we don't self-loathe when we fall because we know it has been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're off the spectrum, so we don't have to hide. You see, that's the point. Paul didn't have to hide because of the gospel. He didn't have to put on airs. He didn't have to pretend to be someone he wasn't because he was secure in what Jesus Christ had did for him, had done for him. It makes you, the gospel makes you realize that you're way worse off than you thought you were. Isn't that encouraging? God bless you. Go home. Um, it makes you realize that, you, that you're way worse off than you thought you were. But simultaneously, it makes you realize that you're more accepted, more unconditionally loved than you had ever hoped for because of the work of Jesus Christ, because of what he's done. So it takes you off the spectrum. It takes the masks off. Well, at least it should, shouldn't it? unconditionally accepted, affirmed, loved, valued, applauded. God is, in Christ, God is pleased with you every day, at every moment, and loves you equally to the love that he has for his dear own son, Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? When you fail as a Christian, when you fail, God looks at you and loves you just as much as Jesus. How is that possible? Because your failure is gone. Because you have his righteousness. God applauds you and loves you. It takes the masks off. We can be afraid with each other. We can be sad with each other, anxious with each other. We can confess sin to each other. There's nothing to hide anymore. Can we be a church like this? Amen? 
is it, wouldn't it be great for us to be safe with our sin, to confess it to each other, to be able to do that and not have a bunch of smug looks or, or we don't even have to be afraid to do it? You don't got to protect your rep. <laughs> you don't got to wear a mask. I have a good rep too, by the way. You don't have to protect your rep or wear a mask or pretend. Doing this, as a matter of fact, if we do this, it kills the gospel purity of our church and of our lives. That's what happens. It is antithetical to the healthy Christian life. You can't do it. It's fake, and it kills the church. Now, isn't it interesting that we often do it, though, especially leaders, we hide our weaknesses. And let me just get even more down and dirty. I hide my weaknesses. And we can all sit there and say, oh, I know someone who puts on airs. I know one who puts on a charade. I know the guy like that. <laughs> right? right? I know someone who's got that public persona thing going. Friends, we do it. We do it. Against you and you only have I sinned. Right? We're so good at confessing other people's sins for them, aren't, they? aren't we? <laughs> but not Paul. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and much trembling. He didn't pretend. The gospel both expects and empowers us to live frankly. See? As we are. The sheepfold church can smell each other. <laughs> We're stinky. We're stinky sometimes. We know you're stinky sometimes. Right? You're human. We all smell nice this morning. Well, maybe some of us. But we know we're stinky sometimes. You know, I'm saying this metaphorically, right? Can we do that? Scripture, scripture goes as far to tell believers, confess your sin one to another. Wow. All of it, I can, I can confess like half of it because those are kind of like the not so bad ones that I won't be too embarrassed about. Though, those I'll confess, right? Not the rest. But scripture says, confess your sins. To, say it out loud in front of other believers that you love and trust. I did X, Y, and Z. Would you pray for me? Would you help me? Can you do that? Do you do that? Do you really believe the gospel? You see, that's how Paul led. Paul served by living his life transparently. He led the church by sharing his humility and his tears. Amen. Paul also served by teaching unhesitatingly and helpfully. Unhesitatingly and helpfully. Both in verses 20 and 27, Paul reminds the elders that he preached without hesitation. Now, isn't it just sort of implied that there's something about the Word of God that would cause us to hesitate from telling people about it? Right? If, he, if he preached without hesitation, it just sort of implies that. It should be obvious from the text, but let's just kind of make it clear that Christianity is about truth. It's about something. It's not just anything. It's about something in particular. That it's about the true God. It's about the God who is who he says he is. The chief function of the church, if we see this in our text, it's very clear that the chief function of the church, the shepherd and the sheepfold, the pastorate, is to simply hold up what is the true doctrine of God 
to apply it to life, to obey it and follow it, and to lead others to do the same. It's as simple as that. The only way we can really know God intimately and purely is to know who he is in reality. Let me explain to you what I mean. If you say, Kyle, I think um, it's great that you're not married, um, that you don't have any kids, um, that you work at job lot, and that you love our... I just think that that's great about you. Now, there's nothing wrong with not being married, having no kids, or working a job lot. But if you think that about me, you don't know me, right? You don't really know me at all. <laughs> so you, you could say, well, you know, I, that's what I'd like to think about you, Kyle. I, you know, you say this about yourself, but I'm just going to pretend that you're like this and not like that. You don't really know me. You can't have a relationship with me at that point. For us to know each other, we have to know who, who we are in reality, right? Not who we want each other to be or who we pretend each other to be, but we have to know our true selves. And it's the same thing with God. If you don't know about the wounds of my past, you don't really know me. You don't, if you don't know the joys of my life, you don't really know me. To know God and to love God requires that we know him, the true him, as he reveals himself to us. And whenever anyone simply communicates what God has said about himself, this may cause us to hesitate. If God is like this and not like that, first of all, we need to know that to love him. But second of all, it could cause us to hesitate. And why is that? Because Christian doctrine, and just kind of write this down, this is important. Christian doctrine, Christianity, will offend everyone somewhere. Okay? There might be nine things about Christianity that you like, but there's always going to be something. And, and that should prove to us, by the way, that it's true. If we make up God, he'll never offend us because he's just us, right? But if there is a God, if there's a real God, we should expect that whatever he's like, I'm not going to like something about it, right? If culture just contrived a religion, it's never going to offend that culture in particular. But if there is a God, there is a true God that is above culture, then he's going to offend us somewhere so at some point in our lives, we should expect that to happen. For example, you know, at the risk of maybe just kind of oversimplifying and stereotyping, Eastern cultures are greatly offended by the idea that God can forgive sin and that we don't have to pay for it. But they love the idea of the justice of God, right? In Western culture, it's almost the exact opposite. We don't like the idea that God will, would punish anybody, but we love the idea that God is love. See? So there's something about Christianity that will offend us somewhere. That's, that's, it's a mark that it's true. The real God, the true God, is going to cut you and compliment you at the same time. See? Fear oftentimes causes us to hesitate in talking about God because we know that. We know it's going to cut someone somewhere. But Paul didn't hesitate. He did not hesitate. Because the same God that cuts is the same God that heals. And we, he loved people enough to not hesitate. Oh gosh, I wish I can come to this point in my life. And I can, I know I can. And we can. To not hesitate. And you say, you know, I know people that don't hesitate. And they're just rude. I don't like them. Right? Like, they, they always say what they think all the time about God and Christianity, and they're just kind of jerks. You know, right? You know who I'm talking about? You know the kind of people I'm talking about, right? 
You know, we know that. I don't want it. We say, I don't want to, you know, that's wrong. But listen to what Paul says. I did not hesitate to teach to you what was helpful. Helpful. So in other words, Paul had this ability to cut and heal at the same time. And how was he helpful? Because, because well, we, we already saw that he had tears. They knew that he loved them. But also, he was giving them something that they, they needed to heal their souls. We need to be careful not to, to just wield, you know, the sword of truth for its own sake. And I think certain personalities kind of like that. But we, we need to be careful not to wield the sword of truth for its own sake. You know, kind of delighting in proving someone wrong. Or just kind of thinking like we're superior because we have the truth and they don't. Right? It's more than just having the truth. How does the truth become helpful to you? How does it become helpful? Well, Paul says in Colossians, let the word of God dwell in your hearts richly. When you start to translate the doctrines of God and who God is as a personal relationship with you, to act as like a compass, a guide through life's problems and pains and trials. So you can know that God is sovereign, logically and on the pages of scripture but it's that doctrine that's going to keep you if your child dies if you have a child that dies a, a husband a wife that's when the word of god richly dwells in you so he served paul was a good shepherd because he preached the word of god as a servant without hesitation and helpfully but listen to this too Paul served in weakness and humility by preaching the word of God unhesitatingly and helpfully, but he also served by teaching publicly and privately. You see, like, well, that was kind of in the text. That's kind of like, do we really have to talk too much about that? Yes, we do, and here's why. If you want to be unhesitating with the truth, and if you want the truth to be helpful to you, it is not enough to simply come to a church service on Sunday morning. You see, Paul was with them daily, house to house. It was almost like a life was shared with the body of Christ. That was more than just an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. Now I know that this is hard, and I know that we can't all equally experience this with every single person in our church or in our lives. But at some point, our faith has to kind of come out in our daily living, doesn't it? I want to say this another way. You cannot grow as a Christian without the, the public gathering of the saints to hear the word of God, what we're doing now. But you cannot grow only like that. It's more than that. You need the truth in your house. <laughs> See, Paul taught publicly and house to house. You need it in your house. You need it at work. You need... You need what is it sort of implied? If, if, if I came to your house and we were talking about the word of God together, what's sort of implied is there's questions, there's dialogue, there's relationship that's beginning to happen. You see that the Christian life is more about that, isn't it? It suggests a deep connection with each other to community. How, how else would these people be wrapped around his neck, covering him with kisses and tears otherwise if he was just a face on a screen? He, they wouldn't have. Christian pastors are not just public speakers. They're private tutors. Likewise, church members are not just lecture spectators. 
but they're familial students. See? Why do you think Paul calls church leaders shepherds in this, in this text? He calls them shepherds. He doesn't call them admirals or CEOs. He calls them shepherds because they lead tenderly and personally and daily. It's the call to the shepherd and to the sheepfold. The sheep need not face a screen, but someone who knows them and loves them and leads them. And by the way, I don't think that that's just the task of me, of myself. That's why the Bible calls the church to a plurality of pastors, of elders, of, of a number of mature people that lead the church to Christ's likeness. They were often together, and I think the modern church struggles sometimes to even just meet once a week, don't we? The sheep need to be willing to be known and the, sh- and the shepherd likewise. That's the kind of relationship that we see in the sheep and the sheepfold and the shepherd. Finally, Paul served generously and without condition. The Bible says that he worked with his hands, was not in it for the gain, worked and labored with them day and night. He was a very hard worker. Okay? It's very clear to me that pastors aren't in it for a paycheck. The Bible calls the members of the church to provide that, but if they're dysfunctional and just way off, the, the, the shepherd just doesn't say, well, I'm out of here. I'm not going to be a pastor unless you pay me. Right? What we see here is almost like this dance where the pastor is willing to, to do it for nothing, but the church would never allow it. See? Because pastors don't, the shepherds aren't in it for the gain. They work for their sheep day and night. Someone once said, I like this, that, that good shepherds love the sheep, but false ones love their wool. <laughs> I pray that I can love you, that we can love each other like that, not each other's wool. A good shepherd labors for Christ, not a paycheck, not for safety, but out of love for Jesus and a love for his people. So a sheepfold is explained by, that's Paul's example. That's the example he set. But I want to look at something else is the call. The call. The sheepfold is explained by the call. The gospel church has a particular calling. And we see this in verses 22 through 27. I'm not going to read it again. After three years of hard ministry, disciple-making, evangelizing, transparent community, all of the stuff we see happening, Paul gets up and leaves. <laughs> Never, he says, I'm never going to see any of you ever again. The call to follow Jesus Christ has to mean that anything's game. That God could lead us anywhere and completely surprise us. Because our first call is to follow him. You know, sometimes shepherds will be at a church for 30 or 40 years, sometimes 3 or 7 You see, we don't follow, at the end of the day, we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Anything's game. Sympathy, affection, all of these things didn't say, you know, I'm just going to stay longer because I love you guys. And he did love them. The will of God compelled him to follow the leading of God at any point, at any price. You see, sometimes God's going to do that to you. 
He's going to take us in a, in a world that's very comfortable with a lot of people that we love, and it's good, and we grew there. But sometimes God, God's going to say, I want you to go to a place where I will show you eventually. Just start, just, just start going. <laughs> and you don't even know yet. And that's what God does. That's what God calls us to. In my mind, like I've always had this idea that if I ever had the, the privilege and the opportunity to kind of shepherd a, a church, that I'd be there for a long time. That's, that's my intention. That's my plan. But how many people know that God's got his plans? Right? We just don't know. Anything's game. Everything's hands up with God. That's how we live our lives. That's how we should live our lives. We should expect each other to be faithful and to be spirit-led no matter where that leads us. No matter where it leads us. By the way, he could leave them all because he prepared them. Right? He prepared them to lead each other. He was doing the diligent work of shepherding and pastoring so that if he had to leave, they were, they were able to manage church life, to continue to, to, to love each other the way he had loved them because he modeled it for them. So they wouldn't be in trouble if he had left because the word of God is our guide, right? All of us are going to die at some point. The church needs the word of God and faithful people, not certain people, you see? So anything's game and nothing's really certain physically. As God's spirit directs us, calls us, not only is anything game, but nothing in the physical sense is really certain. He says, I don't know. You see, I got to go to Jerusalem, and I don't really know what's going to happen to me. Imagine having to say that. But he says, I do know this one thing, because God has been showing this to me for the past few weeks, that I'm going to be imprisoned, and that there is going to be tremendous hardship. Oh, great. You see, when we get the call of God to like go to Papua New Guinea, we want God to open the clouds and say, hey, when you get there, everyone's going to listen to you. Lots of people are going to get saved, and they're going to pour, pour big piles of money at your feet. But that <coughs> it just doesn't happen like that most of the time. What, what I think that we can see here in this passage is as we follow God, in some sense, this is going to be all of us. At some point, God blesses at times, but he also brings hardships. Great difficulties. The call's uncertain. The call is just uncertain. And perhaps it leads us to great times of refreshment and renewal, but other times great trial and pain. And I think anyone who has ever followed Jesus Christ for any length of time knows that to be true. Either way, though, whether in great pain or great blessing, the call always makes available to you contentment. And contentment unconditionally. And you say, I don't feel contentment. Well, if you don't feel contentment, I hate to say this, but brother, sister, in Christ, if you don't feel contentment, something's wrong spiritually. Contentment doesn't mean that you never get afraid. It doesn't mean that you never grieve, right? But this chronic anxiety, there's something wrong. Paul said, I am content. Listen to what he says in verse 24. I'm going to read it to you again. I consider, he says, I'm going to be in prison and I'm going to have all this hardship. I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race. You see, he had a, he had a purpose, a point, a goal. To finish the race, to complete the task the Lord Jesus had given me. 
the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. God had given him a job, and it didn't matter if he had lots of stuff or very little of it. He had given him a job, and he was going to do that job. We see this in Philippians chapter 4 really excellently, and we were reminded of this passage, actually, a pastor's retreat we went to. Um, Chapter 4 in Philippians, verse 10 says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstance. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Friends, that's available to you. That is not for the super elite. That is Christianity. That's the Christian life. That you can be content in any and every situation. That was eye-opening for me because I've mentioned this to you before as a church, but I can be kind of an anxious soul myself, right? When I learn, when I learn from Scripture, that that there's a solution to that, that none of us have to live in chronic panic or fear or depression. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Now that's, that's that verse in context, by the way. It doesn't mean that you can fly or you can climb the highest mountain, right? It means that you can endure any trial with contentment. That's what that means. I can, I can do all things through Christ who gives me. Now, I think this passage is a little funny. He's really paying attention to it. Paul's basically saying, the, the Philippians had given him a monetary gift. Right? And he's saying, like, it makes me really happy that you guys have found like, that it's more better to give than to receive and that you're being generous with your life. But, th- and thank you, but I don't need it. <laughs> he's like, he actually said that to them. If you guys all came up to me after church and said, Kyle, we want to bless you here's a gift, and you just all collectively kind of gave me something, I probably wouldn't say, thank you so much for that gift, but I don't need it. <laughs> I would probably just say thank you. But he may, because he's teaching them. He's always a shepherd. He's always pastoring. He's saying, thank you for this gift, but if you think that it increases my joy or happiness or peace, it doesn't. I don't need it for that reason. You see, because I've learned the secret. I've learned the secret. The call of God, anything's game, right? The call of God, anything's game. Nothing's certain, but there's contentment. There's contentment promised. How can someone be so fearless, so rid of crippling anxiety, so content with life as it comes? I tried to quote C.S. Lewis last week, and I totally botched it because I didn't write it down. But this week, I'm going to get it right because I found it. C.S. Lewis said, He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. That's the secret, you know. You see, I think oftentimes we're not content because we're really just more concerned with the everything else. We're not not content with God alone. He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. And let me just kind of add this. He who has God holy like this can lose everything but one thing, and that's joy. If in Christ we're guaranteed the life to come, 
if in Christ we're affirmed and accepted, if in Christ we are loved by sheer grace and that nothing can take that love from us, if in Christ we are guaranteed eternal life and an eternal inheritance with Jesus Christ, then there is nothing to fear, friends. We don't have to seek the affirmation and applause of leaders or bosses or parents because we have it from God, our parent, the God, the great God. We can lose the whole world and have joy. Our physical life becomes nothing. Loss. Because our lives have become everything to our God. You know, I, I, I mentioned this verse last week. I'm going to say it again. It's about Moses in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He gave up his name. He gave up his position, his power, his prestige. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, rather to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, glutting himself in sex or money or drugs or alcohol. He chose rather, because of his position and all his prestige, to forfeit all that, to, enjoy the to not enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, but to accept mistreatment with the people of God. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. You see, un Paul preached unhesitatingly. When we do that, we're going to be disgraced for the name of Christ. But you know what? It's greater than the treasures of Egypt. Because he was looking ahead to his reward. The reward isn't here, friends. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. And there it is. When God calls us anything's game, nothing physically in, this temporal, in a temporal sense is certain, but contentment is available and it is unconditional. You say, well, what am I, you know, I'm, what am I doing wrong then? What, you know, I'm not dotting my T's or crossing my eyes. How am I falling short of this? Well, friend, that's the journey, right? That's a process. Sometimes we need to figure that out together. All I know this, though, is this, is that the word of God, the promises of God, who he's declared me to be, has to somehow sink down and sink deep for it to bring me contentment. I can't just think it some, someday will just fall on my lap. So, so Paul charges the church and those who, who shepherded it. <coughs> Excuse me. Paul charges the church. That's like the sick area. So don't... Don't go over there after church, right? Paul, David's already sick, so he can. Um, <laughs> all right. Um, so Paul charges the church and those who shepherd it. Um, and he reiterates, he, he charges the elders in verses 28 through 34, 35, basically saying basically the same things that I've already just said to you. He says to them, so you elders, do as I do. Keep watch over the flock day and night with tears. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Because savage wolves will come among you and be on guard for them, he says, warning each other day and night with tears. And this is the charge that he leaves to the elders as he li live as I have lived, in other words. And what is the outcome? What's the product of this kind of church? The sheepfold church. The gospel church. 
It serves each other in humility and tears, transparency, the word without hesitation, the word helpfully, the word publicly, the word privately, the sheepfold church that's ready for anything, that's guaranteed nothing, that has contentment. It's a remarkable place. And the outcome is extraordinary. We see it in verse 36. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and he prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Wow. You know, I, I, I was thinking, how can I, you know, what's, this is the outcome. This is the product of like faithful shepherds and, ch- and, and a church growing in a healthy way. And the only two words that I could think of is passionate love. These people loved each other. They knew each other. They had relationship with each other. I like the Amplified Bible. There's a lot, you know, some of you know there are different translations to the Bible. And I found this translation of this verse. It says, And they began to weep openly and threw their arms around Paul's neck and repeatedly kissed him. Wow. Paul's weakness and humility had transferred. Do you see that? His leadership transferred to them. They were able to demonstrate weakness and humility like he was. And what's assumed is that they were all, what also had transferred them, to them was the ability to publicly and unhesitatingly proclaim the gospel, to have that proclamation be helpful, that they were doing it house to house as well. His leadership had transferred to them. Can you be content and weep openly? Absolutely. You see, contentment doesn't mean that we never grieve. But it does mean that we grieve as those, not as those, without hope. We grieve, and sometimes we grieve hard. But we see through the window. We see the end. And it gives our heart great joy, doesn't it? Because our God is great. The gospel community loves each other deeply. The sheepfold is passionate about their shepherds, and the shepherds are passionate about their sheepfold. They love each other. Friends, can we love each other like this? Serve each other like this? Spend time with each other like this? Can we strive towards that? You say, like, that's just different. That's not me. I don't really feel comfortable with that. Well, how, how about just start asking God? Asking God that we would be a church like that, a sheepfold church. Would you pray? Join me in prayer. Dear God, you are just so good to us, and we just love you so much. We thank you, God, for your, your grace to us. We thank you, Lord, for how you've cared for us in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus Christ ultimately is our good shepherd. We pray, Lord, now as we transfer uh, or, or we transition to our time of communion, that you would just bless us in, our, um, in, in this time, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.